It is such a wonderful day, uh, Mother's Day. Well, uh, we had a very good uh, uh, morning, actually, for, uh, with Pastor's message. On Mother's Day, um, really acknowledging the, uh, uh, and also Brother Ricardo, and uh, we've been talking about Mother's Day all day. Well, I can assure you, I'm not going to be talking about Mother's Day in this message. But it is all about you, <laughs> not just the mothers alone. Um, I think it's, uh, it's best to uh, pray first, and then uh, we'll start the message. Okay. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, Heavenly God, you are a great God who uh, drew your people here this day by your divine appointment. Father, we thank you that you will speak into our hearts. That, Lord, whatever you've got to say, Lord, uh, may it penetrate our hearts. That we will listen uh, attentively because you have come to meet with us this day. And I thank you, Father, that you've given us, given me, Lord, uh, the, the privilege of bringing your word. Lord, it's, uh, it's an absolute blessing to learn and study. But not only that, Lord, uh, as I said, a privilege to even speak about you in this place. We thank you, Father, for this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 3. I, uh, I like to uh, look at uh, chapter 3. Here's what I found. Oh, this is what I didn't want to do. I was going to put my... Uh, watch and my phone if you would excuse me it's it's off it's not that it's on but Siri keeps speaking to me <laughs> and I've got to stop this <laughs> thank you <clears throat> well it shows really <laughs> very reliable interferes a lot <laughs> really uh, so we were at Matthew, uh, I mean, uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, chapter 3, and verses 21, uh, chapter 3, 21. Um, what I uh, like to do is uh, we'll go from 21 to uh, chapter 4. But I will uh, read 3 and 4 in chapter 4. So starting on uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 21. Therefore, let no man glory in men. For all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours. And ye are Christ's, and Christ is God's. If you drop down to chapter 4, verse 3. By, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you, or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not my own self. For I know nothing myself, by myself. Yet... I am not hereby justified, but he that judgeth me is the Lord. I like to say, may the Lord add his blessing to his word, and it is. For us today, really, uh, it is these words that should convict us. So to start with, as a background for uh, talking about the Corinthians, Paul was discussing the problems when he was writing this episode. He was apparently in, in Ephesus writing to the Corinthian 
churches at that time. We know from history, Corinth was a trading hub, a port city, attracting people from diverse backgrounds. Uh, a, a, a popular city with a lot of questionable moral practices. In fact, the great temple, Aphrodite, was there. Promoting lots of unwanted popularity. I'm not going into details about this, as you, most of you already know what this is about. Basically, a very sinful society. In the midst of this place was the Corinthian church where believers were present. Believers were present. He wrote this episode in response to what? The issues where believers were breaking into factions and parties along the party lines, as they call, causing divisions because they were able to relate to that particular pastor, that particular minister, preacher, missionary, whoever's really been in and out of that church, and they belonged to them. And, and they had an affinity to them. And, and that was causing the factions. They were more aligned with one particular person or not. And they are not interested in another person. But Paul was more interested in the attitude of God's people as believers. Rather than just only concentrating on the divisions. You know what he did actually. In, in our health industry we call that the RCA, root cause analysis. Which we don't, we, he didn't do that quite. And human resources will know all about that as well. So... What he, what he did was he went to the heart of the problem. He didn't call a committee. He just went to the heart of the problem because he had the word of God in his heart. He knew also of his learnings. And, and he says in, in, in that statement, you know, uh, where, where, where his verse was, after... After really looking at their problems, he decided, he says, in verse 22, uh, 3 to 22, he says, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours, he says. This is such a broad statement. What is all are yours? You know, what does that mean? Really. So I decided that is the title for this message. All are yours. My first point will look at the text. The text itself, it says, all are yours. In the first point I, I looked at is Paul, Apollos, Cephas. These are people. And that's what Paul was saying. These are people. Right? And he's saying, all are yours. So, so he's remarking, his remarks about these three men. And he says, these are people. And these are yours. These are your people, all of them. So the problem uh, facing the Corinthian church was they were treating these ministers as what? Masters. Or men with having some exclusive line to God. They are men doing the work of God, actually. Preachers taking the gospel to the people. That's what they were doing. These are ordinary men chosen by God to deliver this message. They were not created any different to you or me, to any one of us. We know they all came from different walks of life. Paul, a man, before conversion, was a learned man. He's a learned man, or was. Man of the law, Roman citizen, from Tarsus, and a Pharisee. 
That was his credentials. Look, it's a, quite a strong credentials, isn't it, really? Apollos, a learned Jew from Alexandria who became a Christian and a teacher of the faith. You know what's good about Apollos? I didn't know much about him, actually. But he was known for his eloquence, his ability to engage and speak so well. That was his uh, blessing. Cephas, now we know Cephas, Peter. Peter the fisherman, a forthright kind of a man he was. That was the person he was. And he heard the call of Jesus, the Savior, and he went. That's what he did. They all had one common purpose, men receiving the commission to take the gospel to the people under the divine power of God. Whether they were their jobs, whatever, they were fishermen, they were builders, they were, uh, in, in Paul's case, uh, tent makers or teachers, administrators, or whatever their jobs were, or any other skills. What were they? Servants used for God's glory. That's what they were. On their own, they could do nothing though. Paul personally identifies himself as who he was, even as a preacher, who was he? In 1 Timothy 1.15, he says, This is a faithful saying, the worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. An ordinary sinner, he identifies himself. Saved by grace, heard the call, like you and me, he and accepted it. Second Corinthians 4, 5. And this is important, this verse, to think that this is what he's addressing the Corinthians, he says. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. As pastor was talking this morning, you know, servants? As he didn't expand it, oh my, but the word servants... It's doulos, isn't it? And most of us know that. And what is a doulos? A bond slave. Bond slave. Devoted to, to another to disregard of one's own interest. That's what a servant is. Disregard of one's own interest. In other words, these workers heeded the call and chose to serve. The Corinthian church were made up of people in that region, weren't they? If you, if you think about that, the Corinthian church. I, I, in one of my readings, I, I saw uh, there was about 20,000 people. I know in these days, you, you think, oh, that's so small. It isn't. It's a port, right, in that place. That's, and there were what kind of people? There were Romans. There were Greeks. There were Jews. And I don't know I, I, how many others. Such a, a diverse group. Of people. But it is uh, quite interesting that um, with all these people, with all of them inevitably have their ways and peculiarities as God created everyone with, this, with their individual personalities for his purpose. No one was present there by accident, just like here, isn't it? Look at the diversity of this place. Paul claims they are yours. I'm going to repeat myself here a few times, it looks like. These people belong to us, he says, and we belong to each other. They are yours, right? So, yours means he belongs to us, right? This is exactly what he is talking about. It means, if they belong to us, what does that mean? Possession. Proprietorship. That's what he's saying. It belongs to you. It, it, the, 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 in the context, 
of these men, they belong to us equally, though they may have their differences. That's what he's saying. Similarly, in the context to the word, all are yours. We all belong to each other, he's saying. Paul is challenging us personally. And that's the, the good thing about how Paul puts it here. Paul is challenging us personally, saying they all belong to us. And we belong to Christ. The flip side to that is that we belong to them as well. See, it's not all belong to us. We belong to them. We belong to each other, in other words. Paul is uh, incredible how he, he, he plays with those words. And it is an important concept that when things or people belong to us, we have a responsibility for them. Others belong to us, and we belong to them. This, this blows away the thought of self, really. Self-centeredness, really? It doesn't exist if this is the case. This is not about us anymore. If we say we believe, we are believers, and we are not our own anymore, we are our Lord's, and He is ours, remember. It, it, it really reminded me of that verse in uh, uh, Song of Solomon's, you know. You know that verse 2.16, it says, My beloved is mine, and I am his. You see, it's, look at that statement. And that's what he's saying. Paul is not taking it from anywhere else. He's relating to what is already there. My beloved is mine, and I am his. How could we do this? So as people... How could we do this? No. We cannot do this really. Not by human effort. No way. It's not possible, is it? That's why we have what uh, Paul says in Romans 5.5. 5. What does he say in Romans 5.5? 5? We all know this. Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. Romans 5.5 5. Only God's love showered upon us can convict us, convict our hearts to take such proprietorship of others. We can't do it. Only God can. Just the other thing though, just because I've got proprietorship, I should put shackles on them? That's not what he's saying. That's not what Jesus did, did he? Jesus never did that. This is very much about our personal attitude towards others. We are to care and nurture them, and yet they might not be our cup of tea. From a human perspective, this sounds so very idealistic. This is why we need sanctification, and when... We submit and surrender to God's will. The perspective of others changes every time you look at someone or criticize someone. It's interesting, you know, I, I was here last Wednesday. And Pastor, you put up a, a, a beautiful... Uh, interesting video Jermaine Thomas Jermaine Thomas uh, was a missionary uh, to Korea and, and really that uh, that affected me actually looking at it a missionary to, uh, to Korea was executed during his second visit by locals and apparently he had handed over a Bible to his executioner. Uh, you know, <laughs> Jermaine Thomas, I went and read about it even more after this. He had endured losses, sickness, disappointments, but used every opportunity 
to take the message of the gospel to Korea, to the people, as difficult as it was. The faith had, since then, if you look at it now, it has grown so exponentially. Jermaine Thomas was, was looking at himself, was he? Or what was he doing? Was he just looking about himself? He was thinking about the others. He, if you, if you think, you know, this, he, if he had, if what we see, what we have heard about him handing over this Bible to this executioner, was he thinking about converting him? His, his purpose was just reaching out to whoever will listen or to respond to the gospel. That's yours. That's God's business. And he handed over, he says, the gospel. We also learned another interesting confession by another missionary in Korea, which I can't, couldn't remember who his name where he found this, this other missionary, where he found that he had not been able to break through the resistance to reaching out to the indigenous. He couldn't get through, he says. But he was so convicted, from what I heard that day, he was so convicted of his sin and confessed publicly his sin of superiority. Which is a strange word, actually to think that he was convicted of that. He had initially thought he was going there to teach these natives to become more civilized by using the Bible. He had to learn humility and was prepared to be the servant of the Lord first before God had opened the doors for evangelizing. It's interesting, isn't it? Friends, from this we learn that it is not what we do, you know, that matters. Rather, believing, verse 22, all are yours. Having the greatest privilege of receiving and living the truth in faith. When we belong to one another, and the same is all, for how could we have, you know, if that's the case, if we all be believe and say we all believe that we belong to one another, how could we have rivalry, competition, contention, self-exaltation? That would not be any point, really, is it? Or purpose for criticizing others, boasting, having one-upmanship. Or even trying to impress as there would be no battle for superiority. No point in pressing. One might say this is so idealistic and I could agree with you. You know what has happened in our complex, complicated society. It sounds so idealistic, isn't it? But our society has become so complex, so complicated. We are so far removed from the truth. It's, it, 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 it feels virtually impossible. That's how it feels like. It's not even normal, really, to feel like this, you know, to even consider this. But put, Paul puts a challenge to these Corinthians with that thought. In the midst of all that, he is putting that thought to the Corinthians. You know, what's the difference here? I ask you, what's the difference in, in this world? What is a, a, a word of caution that I was thinking about it and it says, when we use our humanity or our failings as an excuse, one begins to justify our actions. This is what actually happens always. We, we, we begin to justify our actions. When that actually happens, it causes for us to be alarmed. We need to be convicted of that. You know, uh, 
one of uh, Spurgeon's popular saying, sayings, uh, you know, I'm sure you heard that, don't give fair names to foul sins. Call them what you will, they will smell no sweeter. Jeremiah 17.9 says, as we know, the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked, who can know it? Trusting your own heart is a risky business. Really. Saying all that, that was only point one. Point two. We are still on verse 3.22. And 3.22 says, we have done with people, whether Paul or Paulus or Cephas, now we are going to do or the world, 322, the world. The world is yours, he says. That's what he's meaning. Psalm 24, 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. The earth or land in this world and its inheritance belong to God. Paul reminds us that this belongs to us. The world is yours. However, Jesus runs, it was interesting when I was reading that, I was thinking, Jesus runs a contrast about world, the word world. John 17 is where I saw the contrast. Is, you know, John 17, 14, and you read, I have given them thy word, and the world, who was that? The unbelieving inhabitants. That's what he's talking about. And the world hath hated them because they are not of the world even as I am not of the world. So this unbelieving inheritance hated them. I pray not that thou should take them out of the world. That's a physical world. But that thou should keep them from evil, protecting this is the protection for the believers, he's praying. Sanctify them through thy truth. The word is truth, he says. God is truth. That's why he's saying sanctify them through thy truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, which is including both, even so have I also sent them into the world. So Jesus has, has differentiated but really putting it together into saying that the inhabitants of the world are the, un, the, the unbelieving ones. The believers are the ones that needs to be protected. So we need sanctifying. That's what he's saying. I see a wonderful confirmation by Paul though here with Jesus. That the world belongs to you and Jesus did not leave his people unaided. But rather, he says in verse 17, set them apart, sanctify them. Set them apart from evil or protect them from evil through thy truth. We can be confident that he had begun a good work in you, will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Yeah, Philippians 1.16, isn't it? Will do his work. God will do his work if we continue to trust him. Let us be clear, though. When we talk about the world, it sounds terrible, actually, in the way I put it. But if you really look at it, the, the world is beautiful. The creation, magnificent creation, really, of God for us. That is the world. I was watching the other, you know, just not long ago, I was watching this. The, the world, and, and, and you look at the environment, you know, whether you go to Europe or States or... Or, or Asia, look at that land mass. It's just, it's, it's mind-blowing, actually, to see this creation that he has made. And that's what he has made. But when we see sin and all the evil, we have no cause for alarm, actually. We came from among them, the world, the inhabitants, the unbelieving inhabitants, we came from them. But by the grace of God 
and his mercy, we have God living in us. Because he privileged us to receive him. This is supernatural, praise God. This is supernatural. This is not by your own. Point three says, in, in my point three is, life is yours. As you continue to read, life, the life is yours. Because life in Christ is the only life. The Christ, and Christ came that we might have life. This has been given to us. That's what Christ came for. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. He says in John 3.15. And he says in 1 John 5.11 that, and this is a record that God had given to us eternal, eternal life. And this life is in his son. It is only through Jesus Christ, the son of God. Paul throughout his epistles, we see he, he constantly reminds us that he did not deserve life. Think about it. That's what he did. He didn't deserve this life. He is very quick to recognize his vulnerability. Even knowing the truth, he records, you know, in what? Romans 7, he records, oh, wretched man I am. Knowing the truth, he says, because of his fragility to sin, it is not an excuse. He recognized that, but can appreciate God's mercy and grace upon him. That is humility. He recognizes. As he says in uh, uh, Colossians 3.3, 3, you know, it's, for ye are dead and your life is hid in Christ. That's what he says. Like Paul, are we humble enough to not only receive but live this precious life in Jesus? It's a question. Just to recap, I've done three, isn't it? All are yours. That's to recap. All people are yours. The world is yours. The life is yours. Point four, he says, the death is yours. What does that mean? A very, very strange statement that death is yours. You know? Death is, death to sin is ours. I agree. Death to sin, yes. Death to death is ours as well. Why? 1 Corinthians 15.55, Paul says that. What? O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? There is no death for the believer. The day we receive Christ, death is defeated. We all know that. But this is really reiterating the fact there is no sting. There is a victory. If we have that, when we have that, where's the fear? Where's the fear? Where's the despair? Where's the anxiety? Or what might happen to us? Jesus is the answer to all that. For he is the victory. And in him is the victory. Point five basically says, things present is yours. Things to come, uh, things to come is yours. This term, things present is yours, things to come is yours, is essentially talking about time. All time is yours as well. The present and eternity is yours. This really encompasses our existence, in a sense. When we look at the magnitude and the majestic creation all around us, as I said before, and come to the realization Nothing is attributed to us. It's all his. And he says that's ours now. 
Just consider that statement though. Here we are sitting in this place and nothing can be accredited to us. That's what I'm saying, nothing. Do you, I was thinking about this, do we believe we came here by our own volition? At the same time I say we are here by divine appointment. All we had to do is to receive that invitation that has already been given to us and for us to respond. That's why we are here today, this night, this evening. All things are true. All these things are true. All things are true. Because verse 323 in 1 Corinthians says, and ye are Christ, and Christ is God's. We belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. That's what he's saying. Paul explains, in Christ all things consist, and that includes us, right? All things consist, and that includes us. When our position is firmly cemented, and that all things are ours, and we are Christ, what are you saying? There is no separation. Jesus, Jesus affirms this in John 14, 23. If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. What we see here is as a believer, when we receive obey and trust our Savior for who he is, a bond is formed. And he promises his Father and him and by the power of the Holy Spirit will abode in us. There is, they are in residence with us. That is eternal security we have. Eternal. Now, as Paul establishes this kind of relationship, you know, that's what we have. Total security with him. We have with God, it helps us to realize. When we have this kind of relationship, you know what it helps us to realize? Liberty in Christ is also yours. As you read on to chapter 4, we move on to liberty. Uh, my, my sixth point is 1 Corinthians 4.3. It says, but with me, it is very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not my own. If you allow me some latitude... I like to paraphrase this a bit. Jesus has, what Paul is saying is, Jesus has given me everything. He has said, all things are yours. I do not need anything or anybody's approval, do I? No. Paul is saying, my relationship with Christ has been established and cemented, as I said before. In, in total humility, I am the servant for, God, for the gospel or servant for the Lord. He is in total control of my life. That's all that matters. That's what Paul is saying in those verses, in that verse. With that kind of relationship he had established in his understanding and with his heart, he basically says he is not going to be ruled by what others think of me, he's saying. In fact, I don't even think much of what I think of myself. That is the freedom and liberty he has. He is able to come to this decision no? because he had been reconciled with this, reconciled and his understanding of this, of self and how self operates. That's what he has come to, the point. He understands, he says. So self functions from its own understanding, doesn't it? It is about me, 
That's what self is. It's about me, myself, and I. That's what self is. They call it ego, right? The synonyms, if you, if you ever look at the synonyms, self-esteem, ego is self-esteem, self-importance, self-worth, self-conceit, self-respect, self-image, self, self, everything. If I have to pick a word to describe self, I'm more likely to lean towards self-importance. It captures the position of how a person views themselves. There are, they are central to all things, actually. You know, there are many examples in the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, about this. This has been demonstrated through that. Adam knew better, doesn't, didn't he? When his self-importance was challenged, if you think about it, you, we, we can call it deceived. He was deceived. But what part of him in himself gave in? Self-importance. I can make this decision. Resulted in being deceived. There's no point him blaming somebody else for this. She did it. You know. Abraham could not wait for the promise to be fulfilled. Though he was a man of faith, his self-importance knew better. Didn't he? I can sort this out. Cannot blame anyone else. She, did, she told me to do so. No. David, giving in to his lust for a man after God's own heart, deceived by the flesh, we say. His self-importance as a king knew better succumbed to feeding that flesh. Paul, the man we are reading, a Pharisee, thought he knew better. Two, his self-importance as a learned man of the law and all the studies and the wisdom that he had persecuted the Christians until he met Christ. That is what self-important self does. You know, I remember talking to someone. I'm taking a bit of time here. Isn't I? Uh, I remember talking to someone uh, not long ago <laughs> who said whilst he was walking along the city, he came across this uh, disheveled man. We will see them anyway, begging, right? And he said, you know, ah, look, you know, this chap, he looked in a terrible state. I think I better drop in a few coins on this chair, you know, on his bowl. And he left. And he said, you know what? I really felt good about that. I really felt good. Because I really did a good thing today. And I felt, and he said thank you to me. And I really felt good. That he had helped someone. If you look at it closely though, It was all about him doing good, didn't it? Nothing to do with that beggar, <laughs> but all to do with him, of his self-importance. That was met. He was important. It was so subtle as that. Then you can turn around and tell me, oh, Benji, you are a spoiled sport here. <laughs> you know, putting a dampener on his good deeds. <laughs> really. You could say that. The deed was not the issue, though, but it's the motive behind it. We know from Romans there is nothing good from us. So, when we do good, surely it comes from God, doesn't it? Is it attributed to us? Likewise, when someone do good to us, where does that come from? From God as well, isn't it? You know, it's a very interesting to think about that. You know, so when we do good, surely it comes from God, not from self. When others do, it comes from God as well. Right? Likewise, 
you know, all these things. When we view all these things that way, God gets the glory, not us, not even others. We can acknowledge that. Praise God, we can acknowledge that God had put that in that person's heart. We can acknowledge that. Our view on others has the same impact, irrespective of the status or who they are, what they believe, irrespective. God, that's what it, it is. That's why God's love, uh, God loves us all and we are to emulate that love to all. That's why when Romans 5.5 5 is so key to this. Because the love of God is poured onto us. That same kind of love recorded in 5.8. You know, it's a few verses down. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is Christ's love, agape. There's nothing about self here. Who is our inner man? Who is the overseer? of our life. In fact, Andrew Murray, <laughs> I was reading Andrew Murray once, and, 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 and it's interesting how he, he talks about self-manifesting. He says, dear friends, he says, are you willing that God, with his searchlight, should reveal to you how much self-will and self-trust is in you? Take, for instance, your judgment of people. You say whatever you like, and whatever you think, and even boast that you say whatever is in your mind, yet you have not yet learned to study the humility and the tenderness and the gentleness of Jesus. You say what you think, even though you might not always think before you say it. Should I read that again? You say what you think, even though you might not always think before you say it. That is self, manifesting itself. It, it, it just on the side though, as a self exercise, yourself, making, if you, if you ever find the time to do this, may I suggest you think about it. When you witness, when you witness a contention or a criticism or listening to a gossip, oh no, nobody will be gossiping here, no. But if you listen to a gossip, can you identify how much of credence was given to self? Just use that as an, as an example. Use that as an exercise. You see, how much of credence was given to self? Either by yourself or someone else. It can be quite revealing, I must say. I'm, I'm on, uh, on the last point here. 1 Corinthians 4.4. 4. The verse 4 hits this point home. For I know nothing by myself, yet am I not hereby justified. But he that judgeth me is the Lord. Even though he's saying, what he's saying basically is, even though there's nothing in his ministry is amiss, and my conscience is clear, he's saying, I cannot just accept it, as I will only accept Christ's verdict. That's what he's saying. You know, uh, one of the commentators said, Paul says, the verdict of my own conscience acquits me of all intentional unfaithfulness, but this is insufficient. That's how Paul sees it. Uh, Psalm 9, 12 says, who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults, because, why? God sees with clear vision than ours. The, this, this, the extent he has understood, that's what Paul has understood, what self can do to us. All that tells us is, when all liberty belongs to us, how self has no place in us. That is why Paul can say, in freedom, I belong to Christ. As such, I really don't care that's what he's saying in that verse. I really don't care what others think of me. Or even what I think of myself. But certainly only what God thinks of me. 
That's what he's saying. I'll finish off with this. It's, it's what Spurgeon wrote and how he puts it in one of his devotions about us, what we would want with Christ. I bear witness that never servant had such a master as I have. Never brother such a kinsman as he has been to me. Never spouse such a husband as Christ has been to my soul. Never sinner a better saviour. Never mourner a better comforter than Christ hath been to my spirit. I want none beside him. In life he is my life. In death he shall be the death of death. In poverty Christ is my riches. In sickness he is my bed. In darkness he is my star. And in brightness he is my sun. He is the manna of the camp in the wilderness. And he shall be the new corn of the host when they come to Canaan. Jesus is to me all grace and no wrath. All truth, no falsehood. And all truth and grace, he is full, infinitely full. Friends, this is our God. And Paul says, understand this. All things are yours. We do not need anything else. Self has no place either. Truth and grace is full, infinitely full. All things are yours, my brethren. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for this time. Lord, we spend time just looking at what you have told us. Lord, we are not ourselves without you. It is all you that lives in us, reside in us, and that we can do nothing without you. Self has no place, and everything belongs to us because you have given all things to us, all people. And Lord, we pray, as we learn this, Lord, that you would show us that every time we have an interaction, a thought, or a purpose that we seek, that it is all yours, which all belongs to us. We are so abundantly blessed. Father, we thank you that such truth can only come from you because there is none other. So we, we thank you for this night, this evening. Bless us, Lord, now and send us, Father, with this truth in our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen.